0: show
1: you a better way Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 26, 2016. This is episode 1858 of the Survival Podcast. And today is Friday! Friday, Friday, that's right, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Show. I've got six experts lined up for you today answering your questions. First up, I'll have Erica Strauss on making spa water. I'll have Stephen Harris discussing large inverters run by your vehicle and how to do that the right way. Thoughts on large-scale farm equipment from Darby Simpson. Entrepreneurial opportunities in the homeschool niche by Mike and Sue Laprise. Exercise for those of you that hate exercise by Gary Collins of the Primal Power Method and Going Broad Acre with Permaculture by Jeff Lawton. And I will be following up on Jeff's recommendations and expanding on them to other walks of life beyond permaculture with a segment I'm going to call The Case for Starting Small. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at BobWellsNursery.com today. Hey, folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. the year is 1858, because the episode is 1858. I have three for you from Alex Shrugged. I have The British Raj is formally established. Uh, British's imperialism continues. I have The Great Stink of London. Uh, it's pretty bad and disgusting, but you can read it if you want to because it's not the one I'm going to read today. And I have the one I am going to read today. A house divided cannot stand. But before that, in other news, the wedding march becomes popular for weddings because Queen Victoria selects the music to accompany her daughter's wedding. So yes, you're pretending to be British royalty when you... Get married today. There's a lot of other things in marriage ceremony that's all about pretending to be British royalty, by the way. In Lourdes, France, Bernadette sees a vision of the Virgin Mary, interested in the, in the miracle that Lords will grow. And Boss Tweed takes Tammany Hall. The chubby fellow is going to give political corruption and fraud a bad name. Tammany Hall is a Democratic Party political machine in New York City. It will lose its power in the 1930s after much of its leadership is sent to prison, where I think more politicians should go than ever do. Let me read though, for you, a uh, House divided cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln is the most popular political person in, in Illinois who is not holding public office after his previous run for the Senate. He is remembered as a calm, steady fellow, and well liked so as he returns to Springfield for the Republican convention, he is a shoe in for the nomination and the run against Stephen Douglas. Douglas has been losing steam after a sweep of state elections by Republicans. And in reaction to his remarks in support of the Dred Scott decision, Douglas does not believe in social equality between whites and blacks. Lincoln believes in equality at the level of working for a wage and paying for one's own bread. On that level, we are all equal. At the convention, Lincoln addresses the slavery question. He previews his speech for friends. They say it is too advanced, but Lincoln Lincoln delivers it anyway. Quote, We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object, and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation under the operation of that policy that agitation has not ceased but has constantly augmented in my opinion it will not cease until the crisis shall have been reached and passed a house divided against itself cannot stand i believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free i do not expect the union to be dissolved i do expect that i do not expect the house to fall But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all of one thing or all of the other. Either of the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike, lawful in all states, old as well as new, north as well as south. My take by Alex Shrugged. His speech was immediately criticized as an abolitionist. But in fact, it was not. Lincoln said he did not intend to abolish slavery by fiat, but he did not support its expansion. Quotes from Lincoln can be tricky because while his goal to maintain the Union never changes, the way in which he goes about making that happen does change. His hero, Henry Clay, was called the Great Compromiser. Lincoln looked for compromise at first. Yeah, um, make no mistake about it. Lincoln's goal was not the freedom of the slaves. Lincoln's goal was the preservation of the Union above all things. You can think that's good, you can think that's bad, but that's that's what Lincoln's goal was. But what Lincoln is saying here is, if we continue this process of determining each state as it comes into our Union, whether it be slave or free, and trying to balance it 50-50 so that everybody feels good about it on both sides of the debate, that it will destroy the Union, and the Union will be torn apart. The, the, the course that we must go forward with is either this country is a country where it is okay to keep slaves, or this country is a country where it's not okay to keep slaves. And it's up to the nation to decide it. But it must be one or the other. Now the reason, the reason the slave states didn't like that is because the wind was clear at this point, and the direction that was blowing was clear at this point, and the only thing that was gonna slow down the abolition of slavery was as the nation continuing to expand the slave states. They knew that slavery was going to come to an end, even in their own states. But they, like much as we vote for the lesser of two evils today, because yes, we're, we're heading toward the cliff, but this guy is going at a slow, lighter angle and moving slower, so it gives us more time. Yeah, that's what the southern states were doing, at the expense of the freedom of fellow human beings that by this time was due to the color of their skin by this time was due to the color of their skin. It's not how it started. It's nice to be told that and make it all a neat package. It started out with one human being able to own another human, and the first official slave owner in this country was a black man. Um, but by this time, yes. It was completely based on race. And we let the pigment of another human being's skin to define whether or not it was acceptable for them to be seen as property. And no nation could stand. Especially if there were parts of that nation where that's okay and parts where it's not okay. It would actually be a stronger nation if it was 100% slavery. I'm not saying it's right, but it would stand longer. And it would certainly stand longer if there was no slavery. It would stand longer than the first option as well. But that's what Lincoln's saying here. And this is not a defense of Ted Cruz at all. But it's much like when he was booed at the Republican convention for saying vote your conscience if the people that heard that really felt that well, the, the, all of us if we all voted our conscience would vote for Donald Trump they would have applauded it when you're faced with morality sometimes it makes you reflect inward and then you become violent outward and I don't know a few years later you might end up in a war with brother killing brother my take by Jack Spearco. With that, let's get into uh, your first question today. This one is for Erica Strauss. We have a person that uh, knows they need to be drinking more water but's not in love with drinking just plain water and uh, wants to do something that's actually healthy. He says he's uh, heard of spa water. Is that the way to go? And uh, Erica, what can you tell us about spa water and what are your ideas
2: for it?
3: Hey, TSP. Erica here calling in this week to answer a question from James about water, flavors, and staying hydrated in unbearable heat. James tells me he's chugging a lot of water out in the field, and water can get kind of boring, but he doesn't want to drink Gatorade or use those little packets of electrolytes with fake artificial sweeteners and flavorings. He wants to know how to make something refreshing that's actually healthy and says... I've heard of spa water, which sounds like basically an infusion. Is that the way to go? Well, okay, so hydration. Let's get the easy part of James's question out of the way first and talk about spa water. Yep, that's just a fancy term for a fast room temperature or chilled infusion, water infusion. To make a spa water, grab some combination of fresh soft herbs, fruit, juicy vegetables like cucumber, citrus. Cut whatever you like into appropriate sizes and drop it in the water. 20 to 60 minutes later, lightly flavored spa water. That's really all there is to it. If you keep a pitcher of spa water in the fridge, you can sip on it all day. But beyond that, the stuff you're infusing in the water does tend to break down. So this is really a sort of short-term infusion. And when it comes to spa waters, I str- which I can't believe I'm even using that phrase on the survival podcast, but no- nonetheless, when it comes to spa waters, I strongly encourage you to just play around with whatever happens to be ripe and fresh in your garden right now. But here's maybe a few flavors to kind of get you started. Cucumber and herb. Cucumber is a classic addition to spa water. It's cooling, it's refreshing. You can just pop a slice or two in a glass or a handful of slices in a pitcher of water. Adds a really nice cooling quality to the water. You can pair this with a couple leaves of basil or mint or rosemary or some combination if you like, and you'll have a really great refreshing drink. Berries are also really good in water infusions, raspberries, strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, anything like that. Um, Just add a few berries to your water. You don't really need to crush them up or anything because they tend to be so soft that the water just pulls that essence of the flavor right on out. And then you can throw some herbs in there as well if you like. Mint and blackberry, for example, is a favorite, one of my favorite combinations. Uh, Citrus is another classic. Lime water, lemon water, orange water, grapefruit water. You just squeeze a wedge of citrus in that water and then let let the wedge sort of hang out in there so the peel can continue to infuse the water a little bit. And again, herbs, very good. Lemon and rosemary is a classic. And then, of course, you can mix it up. I did uh, lime cucumber mint water a couple weeks ago that was really nice and raspberry lemon and thyme water that turned out very well, too. So it's really just about throwing a little bit of those flavorful garden fresh things right in your water and then letting it sit. So if the goal is just to add a little extra something to your water just to kind of change it up a little bit, this kind of simple, fresh infusion is a great way to go. But when it's really hot and when you're sweating a lot and you're working hard and you're out in the garden and the heat's pounding down, your body really can need more than just plain water. And the infusion flavor of the spa water is not going to cut it because you sweat out minerals. We call them electrolytes, too. And these electrolytes are important because they regulate stuff to keep your nerves and your muscles working properly, including your heart muscle. So if you start to get really low on electrolytes, you can have some, some problems with like your heart not working at the right speed or your muscles not kind of working right. You can have problems with um, fainting, passing out, all kinds of stuff that you really want to try to avoid. So if you are working hard in the sun, it really is a good idea to make sure at least some of your liquid refills those electrolyte stores too. The key minerals you really want to think about are sodium and potassium. If you can get hold of it, my favorite all-purpose, easy, natural hydration fluid is coconut water now this isn't the same as the thick white coconut milk you get in a can and use like for curries this is the water that comes out of the young green coconut it's very rich in potassium and has moderate natural amounts of sodium and a bit of natural sugar and it tastes really great too in many ethnic markets, in my area at least, I can buy young coconut. To eat it, you just whack the top of the shell. It's sort of a soft, spongy shell. It's not the hard, brown shell that you might think of when you think of a coconut. Um, it's quite easy to just kind of hit with a heavy knife or a machete, and it comes right off. And then you stick a straw in there through sort of the inner meat of the coconut, and you slurp that water up. The best tasting coconut water comes right out of the coconut, uh, but. It is kind of inconvenient to carry a coconut out to the back 40, so there are a few commercial alternatives. Coconut water has become popular enough that you can get commercially packaged versions of 100% coconut water in most hippie-type markets, and you can order it online. I have tried a lot of different types of coconut water and rejected several for having weird off tastes. So if you live somewhere where you can get to the kind of market that sells this sort of thing, um, whole foods, co-ops, that kind of stuff, it might be worth your while to go in, get a few brands and see which one you like. My favorite package brand is called C2O. I buy it by the case online at Amazon. You can go there and check it out. Just use Jack's Tea Spaz link if you do. The different brands of coconut water can vary a bit in their exact nutritional breakdown, but the C2O brand that I happen to have in front of me has 50 calories, 75 milligrams of sodium, 300 milligrams of potassium, and 12 grams of sugar in an 8-ounce serving. Original Gatorade, just to kind of have the comparison, has 50 calories, 110 milligrams of sodium, 30 milligrams of potassium, and 14 grams sugar, per, again, 8-ounce serving. So coconut water is very similar in calories and sugars, but has many times more potassium, about 10 times as much potassium, and a bit less sodium. So that may or may not be a hydration advantage for you, depending on how much salt you typically eat in your diet. Most Americans struggle to get enough potassium in their diet, but do get plenty of sodium. But this is one of those things where your mileage may vary. So the big drawback to coconut water is it's expensive. This is kind of a trendy, hippie-ish health food product, and it tends to come with that health food store price tag. So here's a basic way I make my own homemade rehydration Electrolyte mix to add electrolytes to my water for pennies a serving. It doesn't taste as good as coconut water, but it will get the job done when it comes to hydration. So here's what you're going to need normal, plain old salt. I like fine sea salt, but even table salt will do. And you're going to need a product called Low Salt. Low Salt is a salt substitute for folks who really have to watch their sodium intake, who can't have a lot of sodium. It's primarily potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride. So it's very high in potassium and has a little bit of sodium. You're also probably going to want sugar, honey, or maple syrup as desired in order to make this stuff taste palatable. So the first thing we're going to do is mix up one half teaspoon fine salt and one quarter teaspoon of the high potassium, low salt product. Mix it up really well. This gives us three quarters of a teaspoon of mix, which contains in total 1,320 milligrams of sodium and 450 milligrams of potassium. Now take one quarter teaspoon of that mix and add that to one quart or four cups of water. Now, each 8-ounce serving of your water contains 110 milligrams of sodium and 38 milligrams of potassium, or almost exactly the amount of sodium and potassium in original Gatorade. Boom, done. Hydration mix on the cheap and without any weird chemicals or high-fructose corn syrup or preservatives. If you want the same number of calories and carbs as Gatorade, just add one teaspoon of your favorite sugar-type thing to each 8-ounce Serving or four teaspoons sugar to each quart. And again, this can be granulated sugar, I prefer organic sugar, it can be honey, it can be maple syrup, whatever you like. And if you want less sugar and less calories in your hydration mix, you can cut down on this. You can cut way down on it if you prefer. And the nice thing about this mix is that if you need a bit more potassium in your diet, you can just tweak the ratios of the salt to the low salt to get what you need. The other nice thing about this mix is that if you do end up liking it, you can make a big batch and store it dry and not mixed in water for years in a well-sealed mason jar, as long as you use two parts fine salt to one part of the low-salt high potassium product and use one quarter teaspoon mix per quart of water, those electrolyte numbers, the total numbers will be exactly the same. So you could literally mix two cups of fine sea salt to one cup of the low salt product, shake that all up and have a basic electrolyte hydration mix that would last you probably forever. Just remember one quarter teaspoon mix per quart of water, plus a sweetener like honey maple syrup or sugar as you prefer. This DIY hydration mix is a bit crazy to explain over the air. There's a lot of numbers I'm throwing around. So... I'm going to leave a comment in today's show notes with the exact quantities of all this stuff so you guys can go and get that info at your convenience and not have to rewind a bunch of times figuring out exactly what to do. Um, So anyway, James, I hope this helps give you a couple options for both waters that are a little more flavorful and for a few options um, on how to hydrate, including electrolytes, if you need that as well. Again, this has been Erica for the Survival Podcast, Expert Counsel. And hey, you know, if you like the kind of stuff I talk about here on TSP, why not check out my new book, The Hands-On Home? It's a seasonal guide to cooking, preserving, and natural home and body care. There's excerpts online and over 90 reviews on Amazon to help you decide if it would be a good book for you. Thank you, Jack. Thank you to everyone out there in the TSP community. Stay cool, stay hydrated, and keep those questions coming. I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks.
1: Awesome stuff from Erica's. Always. She's just great. Um, I'll throw a little jack hack, a bonus jack hack in here, just a, a place you can get something really cool. If you go to Costco, you go to the freezer section in their frozen fruit area, they have a four-pound bag of frozen strawberries, and they're organic strawberries. I think it's like a four-pound bag for like 10 bucks or something like that. I don't remember exactly what the price is, but it's insanely cheap considering they're organic strawberries. And if you compare them to, let's say, fresh uh, strawberries at the market, yes, they're frozen. I know, but fresh non-organic strawberries at the market—they're—they're they're, they're far less expensive. Uh, they already have the tops cut off them, so you don't have to do that. and You're not paying for that little bit you throw away, I guess. Um, but what's what's awesome is they're fantastic. They're just beautiful strawberries. They're huge. Uh, they're nice and ripe. They look like they're picked at the peak of freshness. They're great for infusions. They're great for my strawberry lime water that I put out on the blog, um, and they're great for a lot of other things. Like I don't know if you. You dump five gallons of apple juice into a fermenter and throw four pounds of frozen strawberries in there. Defrost, defrost them before you do that, so it doesn't over chill your juice. And uh, add a couple cups of sugar and some stuff they call yeast to it. It makes pretty damn good strawberry apple cider too. I'm just saying, uh, really, really good. Uh, about again, about a, about two pounds of sugar. Uh, five gallons of apple juice, four pounds of strawberries. Uh, be careful with it though. You can emit that sugar if you want to bring the alcohol level down a little bit. Uh, make sure that's a well carbonated, uh, batch as well. That's, that's my easy, simple go-to for putting in my kegerator. Uh, next up I have a question for all things energy, Stephen Harris on large inter- inverters and running them from vehicles.
4: Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert council calling in to answer your question. I have kind of a long one here from Cale Moseley with an expert council question for me. Stephen Harris is regarding the use of an inverter and in a car for emergency power. Apparently he just went through an emergency. His summary. What are the implications? There I go. What are the implications or ill effects of using six foot cables to connect my inverter to a car and what are Stephen's thoughts on attaching a duct to our car's exhaust pipe to channel the exhaust safely out and away from our garage? Here are the details. Friday night, we received seven inches of rain in a three-hour period with the power out. All the neighborhood sumps that weren't on backup started filling up rapidly. Hey, your sump pump filling up when it's raining and there's no power? That is one of those dire feelings. So I jumped in to save my neighbor's basement by start, by running an extension cord all the way up to his garage plugged everything in, and discovered that my little 500-watt inverter couldn't get his sump pump running. Well, in reality, maybe your little 500-watt inverter couldn't get its sump pump running because maybe his sump pump needed a surge power of 7, 8, or 900 watts for a few seconds before it started running at three, 400 watts for 30 seconds to pump the water out. But don't forget, 500 watts is 42 amps at 12 volts. So if you get these little itty bitty clamps that you're clamping onto your battery and into your battery connectors and they're corroded and they're dirty and everything else, do you really think 42 amps is going to be flowing through that? So your inverter might have been fully capable of handling his sump pump your connection to your car battery might not have been able to handle the 500 watts. So don't forget, people, it's not just your your inverter and its power. It's how well that is connected to your battery because... That's where the current's flowing. And if it's just like little itty-bitty teeth of something clamped on, you're not going to get hundreds of amperes flowing through those little itty-bitty connections. So, fortunately, he says, our basements were all spared when the storm subsided after just three hours and the power came back on after three and a half hours. The good news is my wife has given me a green light. Woo-hoo! to go work on this backup power project I've had in mind for months. And we just got her a nice diesel-powered SUV a few weeks ago to anchor the whole project. So now I'm wondering about two things. First of all, I'm picturing a 1,500-watt class inverter and eventually batteries and a charger all residing on shelves in in the garage next to where she parks her diesel. So, okay, as I understand this, you are going to have a battery bank on the shelf in the garage next to where you park your vehicle. And you're going to have an inverter on this battery bank. So let me continue. So you want to have cables, and you you can hook up to the car without moving anything. Would six-foot cables have a huge adverse effect on power, or would they necessitate using zero-gauge wires? Are there other imp there's that word again? Implications I haven't thought of. Okay, well if you are going to run in a fifteen hundred watt class inverter off of your battery of your car with your car at idle, you are really, really going to want three foot cables and you're going to want zero or one aught gauge cables. Two gauge will also work. But three foot is the best. And these do not clamp on. They get screwed on. And they get screwed on. And this is only going to work if you got a top post battery. Because those have nuts that tighten everything down to hold the clamps tight. So what you want to do is before your disaster happens is you go find some more nuts and some washers that will fit on that uh, screw and you screw them on so they're ready and willing to be used when you need them so you don't have to go looking for them or have to untighten your battery clamp just to put on the cables going to your inverter so everyone get this the power fails you take your 1500 watt inverter and you have it mounted to a piece of wood as i show you in the battery bank video at battery1234.com And then you place this on the car, and that way it's not shorting out anything. And with the car off, you unscrew your secondary nuts off of your battery terminals, and you put the terminals, the ring terminals for the three-foot cables going to the inverter on the batteries, then you screw down your second set of nuts and washers to make a really good, solid, tight connection to your battery. Now remember, just because you have a 1.21 gigawatt inverter... Or in this case, a 1500 watt inverter on your vehicle does not mean you are going to get that much power off of it for a long time. Yes, a 1600 watt inverter will give you 1600 watts off of your car battery. However, the car in, the car alternator could, might only be making 400 to 800 watts while it's sitting there at idle. It might be a 200 watt, uh alternator, but that's when it's spinning at 8,000 RPMs as you're driving down the road. You're sitting here at idle. So that's another thing to be concerned about. So if you're drawing 1,600 watts for any period of time, like half hour or an hour, you are going to kill the battery in your car, and your car is going to stall out, and you're not going to be able to start it. So the reason you have a 1,600-watt inverter in your car is such that you might have a sump pump that is going to draw over a 1,000 watts for a few seconds as it kickstarts, and then it's going to be drawing a few hundred watts as it runs, and it's only going to be running for 30 seconds to a minute, and it's only going to be doing this every 5 minutes, or every 15 minutes to an hour. That's why you have a big inverter on your car. In addition, you might have a refrigerator or a freezer that you want to power one at a time off of the inverter off your vehicle with your vehicle at idle. So you would plug one of these in and you would power your refrigerator for like... 30 minutes to an hour, and then you would unplug it and leave everything in it. Refrigerators and freezers don't need to be powered all the time. Stop the obsession with it. I have an entire class on refrigerators and freezers and how to keep them cold with and without power, and it's at stephen1234.com. So secondly, he says he's what you want to do really is you're telling me you want to hook up your car to your battery bank, which has the inverter on it. So, yeah, six-foot cables will be fine for that. If you use zero-gauge wire, that's all the better. Now, you're really worried about the exhaust from the car. And I'll tell you a little secret. When I was in the scientific labs of Chrysler, my specialty was instrumentation. I got loaned to the legal department, and I would help them with the instrumentation of vehicles and testings that had to do with lawsuits. Do you know what would happen to people when they would take a hose and put it on their tailpipe and then run it into the window of their car and roll up their window and try to kill themselves? They would get a headache. There is so little carbon monoxide coming off a modern vehicle, let's say 1996 and newer, that it is very hard for you to kill yourself with carbon monoxide from a vehicle. So if your garage door is wide open and the tail of your car is near the end of the garage and the door to your house is closed and the wind's not blowing into your garage trying to force it into your house, you will probably be okay. If you want to go get some aluminum ducting for like a dryer vent and put this on there and run it out even further, I am not going to argue against that or tell you not to do that. I'm just trying to say that, Vehicles are not the huge carbon monoxide machines that most people thought that they were, were, used to be, or still are. So thank you for the excellent question. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. You can get all of the stuff I have done with Jack at steven1234.com. You don't even need to sign up. Just tap and listen and enjoy and learn. And thank you very much.
0: Oh, this sucker's electrical, but I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. What did I just say? The flux the
3: stores... <laughs> this sucker's electrical, and I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21
0: gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 I gigawatts! 1.21 gigawatts! Praise One Scott! God!
1: Of course, that was from the movie Back to the Future that Steve was uh, distantly referencing with the one point twenty three gigawatts. Uh, it is Friday, and I do try to bring some uh, pop culture humor into the Friday shows when I can. And Steve actually set me up for two of them here. One I just did unannounced. The other one he was talking about, you know, CO two in garages and not as not as dangerous as you would think, but still so you leave it open and yada yada yada. yada. Um, so this was the this was the competitor. This is from South Park. Uh, for throwing a pop culture thing in this and I just decided to do both of them.
0: <sighs> what happened? I thought you were going to kill yourself. I tried.
5: Went to sleep in my mom's car in the garage with the engine turned on. But you didn't die? Freaking hybrids, man. They just don't do the trick anymore. <laughs>
1: Alright, now back to something more serious. We have a question here for Darby Simpson on his larger equipment that he uses on his farm, like his trailers and maybe tractors and things like that. Darby, take it away.
6: Hello again, everybody. This is Darby Simpson with the TSP Expert Council calling in to answer another question. Uh, this week I've got one from Mike in West Virginia, and he's wanting to know if I can discuss some of my larger equipment that we use on our farm and for our business and uh, what I'm looking uh, for in that uh, equipment. Uh, specifically, Mike was curious about, you know, trucks, trailers, tractors, and, and that kind of thing. So, Mike, thanks for sending in this question. Um, in thinking about this, really, we've kind of got five uh, key pieces of equipment that we use on our farm on a very regular basis. Um, and uh, just to uh, kind of set some expectations here for people that don't know, we uh, direct market and sell everything that we raise on our farm uh, through a number of avenues, uh, and uh, you know, w- one of the main ways we sell stuff is at farmers markets here locally. We do two farmers markets every Saturday in the summer and one in the winter. Um, so, a big component, number one, that is you know just a huge issue for us is a truck, which I, I guess that goes without saying, but. You know, uh last year we had to replace our old truck because it was just – it was worn out. It was the first truck we bought to kind of get us by for a few years, and it did a pretty good job for us. But we needed more towing capacity. We needed more cargo capacity for equipment, um, you know, for the farmer's markets and things of that nature. So I actually spent, like, about six months looking for what I would call the perfect truck, at least for us and uh finally ended up you know finding one it was about three hundred and thirty miles away um you know went and and fetched it, and have been just absolutely thrilled with it ever since and that's something we made a pretty significant investment in because the truck is the heartbeat of everything we do, and we kinda uh you know finally came to the realization uh that you know. If we don't have a truck, we don't have a business. Literally, that's what it boiled down to. And I hate spending money unnecessarily on things, but we decided that we were going to make an investment into a really good truck that was going to last us a very long time. Uh, you know, the, the old truck was just kind of getting to the point, you know, every repair was five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars. Some of it was stuff I couldn't do myself. I was having to take it to a shop. We were without it. We were narrowly, uh, you know, uh, uh, avoiding missing farmer's markets, you know, by borrowing a truck here and there from a family member, and it just got to be too much. So we retired the old one, bought the new one, um, and I, what I was looking for was a half-ton truck because I really don't need a three-quarter-ton truck um, except for like once or twice a year. And I tell you what, on those days, I just hire somebody that's got a three-quarter or one-ton truck to do that work for me. Um, but I wanted a half ton truck that I could tow 10,000 pounds with that had a six and a half foot bed and and a crew cab. And I tell you what, used trucks are, they're expensive. They're not cheap, man. Um, but like everything else, there's a bell curve and that's kind of what I looked for. Uh, and initially I thought, you know, uh, maybe we can get away with spending, you know, 12, 15,000 bucks. We were throwing our money away. It was junk. Uh, we had to go up quite a bit in price to get something that was, you know, halfway newer. It was about six years old, uh, but had lower miles on it. We know it's going to last a long time. So for us, that that was a big investment. It's something we use literally all the time, four or five days a week for the business, and we just can't live without it. Uh, the next thing is uh, we have a Kubota RTV, and that is a side-by-side. Uh, with a uh, you know a bed on the back I use that every day two to three times a day uh, we have had that piece of equipment for a little over two years I've put like 2100 or 2200 miles on it just driving around the farm that gives you an indication as to how much it gets used I would absolutely lay down and cry without that piece of equipment uh, it is uh, it's just so essential for hauling feed and you know, uh, we can pull the livestock trailer with it. Uh, we can move the flatbed trailer with it. We can, you know, we can do so much with it. it it's an off-road piece of equipment. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a little four by four. But, uh, if you're not aware, Kubota doesn't build side by sides, uh, like, you know, uh, on, on a four-wheeler-based, uh, platform. Kubota builds tractors. Uh, so this is basically a B-series tractor. It's a 23-horse diesel. It's not fast. But it is a workhorse. Uh, that was another significant investment. But, um, you know, it was just something we needed. It was something we we had to have. Again, we, we use it all day, every day. Uh, it's an essential tool for our, our business. And, um, you know, that's just something we couldn't live without. Uh, now, some other things we have, uh, we did buy a tractor a couple of years ago. Uh, something I looked for in that was about 50 horsepower. Uh, and I wanted something that was 33, 3,500 pounds. Purely uh, for the fact that you know, my biggest need with this tractor is to move 1,200 pound round bales of hay in the winter when I'm, I'm feeding my cows. I could have gotten away with a lot smaller tractor, honestly, for the rest of my needs except for that one need. So, um, but you know, you, you gotta you gotta have what you gotta have. Um, and as a friend once told me, you can always use a bigger tractor for a smaller job, but it does not work in reverse. So. Having a a little bit more tractor than you think you're going to need, in my opinion, is is a good idea. Uh, It ceases to amaze me how many uses we have found for that tractor, Um, and we use it pretty frequently. Not every day like the other stuff that I've mentioned, but pretty frequently. I do think it's something you can live without, uh, uh, particularly if you have something like an RTV that you can use to tow uh, trailers around off-road. Um, it's, it's something you can borrow or rent from a neighbor. It's not necessarily something you have to purchase, but we just got to a point where we, we really needed a tractor that we could rely on. Uh, we needed some business expenses and it was, it was a really good purchase for us. Um, livestock trailer. You know, uh, we use that pretty frequently, a couple of times a month. Uh, but again, you know, it's something I, I, I didn't have my own livestock trailer for a number of years, for about four years. Um, I didn't own one. I rented one, uh, from some other local farmers in particular. We have a lot of row crops on our farm that we haven't converted into perennial pasture. And that tenant farmer, uh, we were working with had a livestock trailer. He was barely using it. I would just borrow his trailer and I would rent it from him. I'd give him a few bucks or I'd take him a bag of meat, uh, and I would always return it in a, you know, better condition than I borrowed it in. And that worked out really well for us for a number of years. He got to the point where he was buying a new livestock trailer and was selling that old one for 1500 bucks and I snapped it up. Uh, and it's, it's served us well for a number of years. Um, I don't think that's something you have to make a a significant investment into. If it's got good wheel bearings and good tires and it'll, it'll hold the critters, uh, that you're hauling, you know, that's, that's good enough. But again, and that's something I think you can rent or borrow pretty easily. And then the last thing we have that we use pretty frequently is a flatbed trailer. Now we use this for a lot of stuff on the farm, but, The, the main thing we use it for is hauling our chickens to the processor and picking the chickens up from the processor because it is, it's, it's pretty good size, about 16, 18 foot long. It'll hold a lot of chicken crates. It'll hold a lot of coolers and a lot of product. Um, you know, it's, it, now that's one of those things, uh, it'd be tough to live without that. And I I don't know that that's something you're going to be able to borrow very easily or that I'd be able to borrow very easily. Um you know fortunately that's something i haven't had to buy. It belongs to a uh, a friend of a of a relative and he didn't have a place to keep it. He stores it on our farm uh we we've maintained it for him, and in exchange uh, for him keeping it here uh he he lets us use it you know he pays the insurance and the plates and stuff like that but those those are the the big pieces of equipment that we use on our farm on a regular basis. Um, you know, outside of, uh, outside of that, we, we really haven't made any other significant, uh, investments in that kind of thing. Um, you know, we did buy a second truck a few years ago because we do those two farmer's markets I mentioned, and that really takes a truck to go to a farmer's market, at least when you're selling meat. So, you know, uh, any, anyway, that's, that's really all I've got, Mike. Um, those are the, the big chunks. Uh, if you got more, uh, specific questions than that, please feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, for the rest of you, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there on all things related to for-profit farming on pastured poultry, pork, and beef. Um, again, that's DarbySimpson.com. And if you like listening to this kind of stuff, hey, go over to PermacultureVoices.com and check out the podcast I've been doing with Diego this summer called Grass-Fed Life. There are over 20 episodes out now. Uh, you name it, we've talked about it, uh, business marketing, nuts and bolts, how to production, um, you know, family lifestyle, uh, we, we've, we've covered just about everything. Uh, this past week we had a two hour episode come out that was a case study on a guy that wants to go from, uh, part-time farming to full-time farming. And we kind of broke down his scenario, and ran through a number of options for him to help him make that leap. And and with that I want to mention that uh, myself along with Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices, we are hosting a uh business oriented workshop here uh near our farm in Martinsville, Indiana this upcoming November 3rd to the 5th. Uh it's going to be a 3-day intensive workshop. It is going to be on for profit farming, it's a business essentials Workshop on covering this this whole idea of transitioning from the corporate gig to the farming gig and what that looks like in your personal context. Um, I, I would encourage you to go out to the uh, the website again, permaculturevoices.com uh, backslash farm business, and you can uh, you know check out the uh, the curriculum that we're going to be covering there. We do have some VIP tickets available. The first 12 people who register get some uh, extra goodies for signing up, and those are already selling. So head on over and check that out if you're interested in coming here uh, this November 3rd through the 5th. As always, everyone, thanks for shooting your questions in. Keep them coming. I love answering them. Loving help, helping you guys out. Everyone out there in TSP land, have a wonderful weekend. Take care.
1: Thanks for that, Darby. I appreciate, uh, the, uh, words of wisdom from somebody that's been doing it for quite a while now and making a go of it. Uh, making a good go of it too. And, and all he's selling out is stuff. And, and Darby is just a fantastic guy. And if you want to know if it's possible to make a living farming, all you gotta do is look at what Darby's doing. He's one of those people that'll tell you exactly how to do. What he's doing doesn't fear competition because, well, in, in that niche, there's not a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of competition in the garbage food market, but in real food that's built on real real pasture and real soil, uh, there's more demand than there is product than there will be for a long time, and that's an opportunity for those of you that want to go that route. Next question is for uh, Mike and Sue Lapreze, who are our homeschool uh, parent experts and uh, they are going to answer a question today on entrepreneurial opportunities for those that want to serve the homeschool market. Mike Sue, take it away.
0: This is Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com for the expert Council. Hey, Jack and TSP community. We have a very interesting question that some of the younger entrepreneurial folks might find very interesting, even if you don't have kids yet. Or maybe some of you retired homesteaders might be able to pick up some ideas on how to reach out to the homeschool community and make a positive impact for some reality-based environmental science learning. Our question today is from Ben in Virginia. How would I approach parents who homeschool their children to offer educational opportunities like guided trips or one-on-one tutoring in non-traditional subjects? I think there's a business opportunity providing services to homeschool parents who can't do it all, want the best for their children and are in search of variety ben also says he and his wife don't have kids yet and it looks like he has some great experience in helping teens and young adults in a couple of areas this is exciting for old homeschool families to see people getting involved in connecting homeschoolers with the world around them when we first started and didn't personally know even one homeschool family sue had to figure it all out herself or it didn't get done We weren't the tip of the homeschool spear, but not too far from it. People would introduce us like this. This is Michael and Sue, the homeschoolers. Like homeschoolers was our last name. And the other folks would say, oh, you're the homeschoolers. We've heard about you as if we were very different than them.
5: That's not necessarily a bad thing since I learned a lot in the process. But in order to increase the number of homeschoolers and for the community to get to the tipping point, where there's safety in numbers, we're really excited about people like Ben putting in the effort to connect. If you're like Ben and you have a skill you think families in the homeschool community could benefit from learning about, we hope this information helps all y'all. Start by going to your state homeschool associations and check out what's offered, what groups are in your area, when the local homeschool conventions are held, and get an idea of the price points for various activities. The cost varies tremendously based on location. The country folks with fewer dollars to spend are going to figure it out themselves or group together to reduce the time and cost it takes. Locations that have larger families will be looking for family-oriented activities even if they have to wait around while the various age groups pass through the program each week. They're super patient and bring schoolwork for those waiting.
0: If you have a special skill that you believe the homeschool community needs some awareness of, you can contact the local convention folks and ask them if you can speak at their conventions. Normally, they don't charge for speakers, and if you're good, you can even get paid. This is also a great way to get your information out to a large audience. Remember, you're selling yourself, but have to understand your target. The homeschool community has diversified greatly in the last five years, and a local convention will give you a good idea on who's interested and willing to pay.
5: For the younger ages, there has been a huge interest in things like forest schools and getting kids into the great outdoors. For someone interested in this age and area, a great read would be Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. Then you get some speaking spots around your area and encourage the parents to read the book. You explain the basic principles that are, I quote, Nature Deficit Disorder describes the human costs of alienation from nature. Among them, diminished use of the senses, attention difficulties, and higher rates of physical and emotional illnesses. The disorder can be detected in individuals, families, and communities. Nature deficit can even change human behavior in cities, which could ultimately affect their design. Since long-standing studies show a relationship between the absence or inaccessibility of parks and open spaces with high crime rates, depression, and other urban maladies, end quote. Now, doesn't that cover liberal high crime in the urban spaces and conservative depression, and mother's little helper syndrome. Speaking at local group meetings will provide you with the opportunity to show them they need what you have and only you can fill in a fabulous and adventurous way.
0: Then you're prepared with a list of classes they can sign up for. We would highly recommend that you begin with group classes. This will give parents a chance to get to know you and trust you before allowing their kids in a more one-on-one mentoring situation with someone who's a stranger. Many homeschool parents understand the unique natures of their children and want them to learn deeply in a subject area that interests them but tend toward groups for safety. Now there are many free outdoor activities that city and state parks provide with the assistance of retired people and a few young volunteers. We've been to a lot of these and find that while the older folks provide greater depth of knowledge for the truly interested student, the less interested kids can pay attention and get some of that deeper knowledge with an enthusiastic, energetic, younger person. If you can find some people to be on your team that can provide that range, even better.
5: One of the things we'd like to see and are trying to do more is family-integrated learning that is more focused on what the parents are learning that they can then implement and teach to their children. Michael and I were just talking about how awesome it would be to find an 18-year-old Nick Ferguson type that loves permaculture and we'd pay him to come over and teach us once a week and help encourage us in understanding how to set up a permaculture garden, and because we were paying him, we would follow through during the week. There are so many skills that parents don't have because a generation ahead of them didn't take the time to teach them. Setting up family classes where you go into their home, they gather a group of friends, and you teach canning, food preservation, and stuff like that, where you charge them and make sure they have something to take home with them so they remember you and want to dig deeper in whatever subject you have knowledge about. You connect by posting your information at the library, farmers' markets, churches that host a homeschool group, and local produce terminals. Maybe there are some Facebook pages in your area that have to do with this topic that you can join in and give information and advice, or set up a Facebook page and try to garner some attention to your topic by inviting people.
0: Ben also mentioned in his email, that he'd taken some college and high school students to New York City three years in a row to introduce them to professional designers, engineers, and artists for a career interest field trip, and that really sounded awesome. Our eldest son wanted to be a chemist when he was 12, until he went to work with a friend for eight hours. He came home and said he was inside all day. When we were reading Ben's question, Sue and I started talking about someone designing a course called not college, where they would set up a series of informational meetings for high school and college-age kids to meet up with local professionals that have careers that may not require college but do require state certifications, like firefighters, EMTs, HVAC, aviation, welding, security dealers, dental hygienists, and plumbers, along with careers that don't require college or certifications like construction, web developer, Survival podcast bloggers and insurance agents. You could have six weeks of meetings where the professionals come in to talk to the students, and then if there was a connection, the students would be responsible for getting to a job site and spending the day checking it out. Adding in the military ASFAB testing, which is free but still needs to be arranged, would give a young person and their parents a good idea of what to shoot for as far as high school preparing them for the real life instead of college.
5: Our son, Luke, is 17 and has decided that he wants to be a fireman. We work with him to set up a seven-week course over the summer to investigate the history of firefighting and the great fires in history, to learn how to cook even better by making dinner every Wednesday night using different techniques, tools, ingredients from the garden, along with ones he's never used, and it's been awesome. Then he teaches a fire safety experiment each week to his younger siblings and their friends. This week was a variation on sinking and floating that included what is flammable and what isn't. His audience had its full attention. He's working on his ham radio certification, and his geography class is learning the area that our local volunteer fire department keeps watch over. And, of course, he joined the volunteer fire department. This is our fifth 17-year-old, so we have gotten better at asking questions and narrowing things down along with providing experiences. But we have to say... The first time around, it was really hard, so we would have paid for a mentoring group that helped kids discover their strengths and gave them ideas on career paths.
0: Some things to remember about homeschooling families. They tend to have more kids than the average family, so be flexible on the age levels for your programs. That would be helpful. Most of them live on one income, so pricing is critical for a new venture. We recommend you start as low as you can for larger groups to get the people heading in your direction and then offer more specialized classes at a higher rate for advanced classes.
5: Homeschoolers travel in herds with a variety of age levels, so we would recommend that you offer the same skills at various age and difficulty levels and allow the parents to be present and participate. We set up a writing seminar with our favorite instructor, Andrew Poudoi, with Institute for Excellence in Writing, and he wants and enjoys the parents being there in the room while he's teaching the writing classes. One, so they can see what their kids can do with his program, and two, so that the parents will understand how the program works. So often teachers want to separate the kids out from their parents, and believe me, parents can be difficult. But learning to work with them in the group setting and giving them something to do, making them learn along with their kids and all that will go a long way to repeat customers.
0: You guys out there with skills can put them to use in the homeschool community. Be clear on what you're providing. Maintain the same location as much as possible. Be on time. Have clarity on your price. And don't have a refund, but a rollover for another class for those people who no-show. And finally, remember the words of Jack Spirko. Do what you say, and say what you do. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live, for the expert counsel. Jack you're the marketing expert. What did we miss? Great
1: stuff. My only addition here is, as from a, from a, a pure business school of thought, if I were building a business today and I looked at the homeschool niche uh, and said, I think this is a, a good niche to approach, and I want to serve this niche, I would I would see it as exactly that—a niche or a niche, depending on how you say it. I say niche. So, when you look at any business, you'll find that it goes, another way to describe this is what you call vertical market, vertical market. So, when I started the Survival Podcast, of course, my primary niche was preppers and people that wanted to learn about prepping, right? And that was a a, a great vertical within the entire concept of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. It's the the low-hanging fruit. It's why I called the show The Survival Podcast. But if you were to to take a cross-section of this audience today, you would find people that are, are preppers. You would find people that are now prepared but would not call themselves preppers. You'll find people that are primarily homesteaders, uh, farmsteaders, back-to-the-land people. You'll find people that are primarily worried about alternative energy or producing their own food. You'll find actually that the 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 audience is far more diverse than you would ever believe, and some of the people tune into specific shows, and some people tune into all the shows. But the vertical of preparedness mindset—I want to do something about this survivalism—that was a great vertical to build the business on. But I never intended, never intended to build the show and the business of it only on that. Because it's too narrow of a niche. Now, I can reach anybody in the world. My cost of delivery is very, very low. Even today, uh, my my cost of delivery, I, I consider the cost of my web services hosting. And that's about $1,000 a month today to serve as many people as I do with a large audio file every day and make sure all the sites work and everything else like that. It costs me about 1000 bucks. In the beginning, it cost me like $10 a month. So... Imagine now you're trying to go into a narrow niche, and you can't reach everybody in the world. You can't reach everybody in the country. You can't even reach anybody, everybody in the state. Now your narrow niche is even more narrow. Okay, And then within that niche, you have a varying demographic. You have people that, frankly, some, I've met some homeschoolers that the only way I can describe them is dirt poor. And I've met some homeschoolers that are extremely affluent. But when you're selling to a market, you're going to primarily be able to draw revenue from the the median upward. So now we've taken the geographic area you can reach, okay? We've taken the median, which is the middle, and it doesn't even matter, right? If, if the bottom's not dirt poor, right? This is a, a constant in, in, in when you sell into a market, you're primarily going to sell a product that costs money to the median of your niche and above. So that's half. That just ends up being half. Take a niche to a niche to a niche to a half. Okay, I'm not saying not to do it. I think it's fantastic. I think what you would find is if you build the right business, then you would have an extremely loyal niche if you're serving them right. But then you have to think about it this way. Let's say you figure out that in your general geography, there are about 200 families that you can sell to. All right? And uh, that will pay for your product. That's not probably enough to make a business run for a year unless it's a very high dollar sale, which you probably is not a good entry level sale. So then all you have to do is come up with a way that those people can do business with you four, five, six, seven, eight times a year, depending on your ARPU or your average revenue per user or average revenue per unit sold. What it what is an average sale. And if you keep that number low enough that people can afford to come back to you, and you give them enough diversity that they have sufficient reason to come back to you. Because if you do like a farm tour, let's just say for that, or a trail tour or something like that, well, we did that already. It's always fun, but how do you make it different so you begin to build repeat business as those children mature? And how do you develop programs that work for all ages and programs that maybe specifically target certain groups But if you if you build the right thing, then what you can do is you can make this core niche of of homeschoolers, self-directed educators. But you can uh, you know what what then are your corollary verticals? Boy Scouts of America, uh, possibly people that are in FFA. I don't know. It all depends on what you're actually doing. But if you don't think broader, you may find yourself having a very difficult time making enough revenue to remain viable so you can continue to serve your customers. Now, there's another way to look at this though. There are, you know, broad businesses with verticals or niches, depending on what you call them. I prefer the term vertical because I think when you look at vertical markets within a business, it's a lot more clear than a niche market, right, as to what you're talking about. And multiple verticals and how they all integrate together. The language just works better for me. But you also can have businesses that have what you would call revenue units. Alright, and this is another way to look at it. So if I have a farm and my business is farming and I make my living farming and I can add a revenue unit into the vertical of homeschooling. And that brings in five thousand dollars a year that I would not otherwise have, and I'm doing good things, and I'm influencing the minds of the young, and I'm building notoriety with my brand, and I'm bringing in homeschool families who are generally are more concerned about their health, who now become customers of my farm. Now the whole thing starts to cycle together in a synchronistic manner. So all I because I've thought about this market, this this vertical market of homeschooling a bunch. And, and 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 whenever I think about a vertical, I think about a much more holistic approach to business. So hopefully that'll help not just people that would want to approach that vertical, but any vertical, and, and and think about how to do things where you function stack. I already have this business; it already does these things. Here are ways that other people might be attracted to it. If I added this one little segment to it, they become a business unit or a revenue unit. Now the difference there, real quick, and I got to move on. A business unit runs like a sub-corporation, right, or a sub-business. A business unit would be, right now we have our business, our agricultural business, but the the ducks are the primary revenue model, uh, and, a, and a second revenue model is the quail. If I ramped the quail up to where I was producing 2,500, 5,000 eggs a month and actually got commercial accounts to be able to move that kind of product and hired my Part time hand full time and had him run that, right? That's no longer a revenue model or a revenue stream because I just kind of put him in place and he's running that. And all I got to do is sign the checks and make sure everything's going right and do a little oversight. And he's now there like a little fiefdom going on, like Joe Salon calls it. That's now a business unit. Got it? So it's being run as its own little mini enterprise. So just thinking all these different ways and proving that vocabulary for any of you entrepreneurial types, this is how you begin to piece together your opportunities and, and realize how to, how to take a side hustle and turn it into a primary income source over time. All right. Next one, we have a question for uh, Gary Collins on exercising for people that think exercising sucks. Gary, take it away.
2: Hey everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the primal power method. And today Uh, and this comes up often in when dealing with clients is I often get asked, you know, or told, I don't like to exercise. I find it painful. It's monotonous. It's boring. And that's for a lot of people. I'm one of those sick puppies. I love going to the gym. I love working out. Um, but I also change it up all the time. So not every day's the same, but James wants to know if he can replace his regular exercise routine with the things he likes, like swimming, kayaking, and going on day hikes, and my answer to that is absolutely. The only reason humans have to go to a gym or go add exercise is because we don't get enough, uh, we don't do enough physical activity in our daily lives. You know, just a hundred years ago, most of us were farmers. Most of us did manual labor uh, with you know, more of the computer revolution and technical fields becoming more prevalent, office work. We have had to supplement or at least come up with a way to get some physical activity because a lot of us sit behind desk all day. Now, it's like I've been asked by homesteaders this question several times. And I say, if you have a homestead and you're out baling hay, you know, feeding all the animals, mending fences, putting in fences – Fixing roofs, building structures, that's plenty. You do not need to add more exercise into that. And I would recommend that you actually, you don't unless you have specific goals and you want nice biceps for those girls and all that good stuff, then maybe you go do some bicep curls afterwards. But the best way to stick with, I shouldn't even call it an exercise program, the best way to be healthy is to make your lifestyle your exercise program. So, you know, do the things you enjoy. You know, if you like biking, hiking, you know, uh, going out and and hiking to go hunting, you know, those kinds of things, uh, that is exercise. That is the way it works, you know. I actually tone down my exercise routines when I'm real busy with the house, building the house and working on stuff. It's just too much to work out and then spend a full day – Working on the house because I'm getting burning a ton of calories I'm getting plenty of exercise already and again it depends on your goals if you want to have a specific physique and look a certain way well then you're going to have to implement some kind usually some kind of lifting routine uh, resistance training of some sort because you know you have to train all the muscles and depending on your your lifestyle you may Only if you're hiking, you're not going to be working a whole lot of your upper body. So you may have to add some push-ups in there, maybe some crunches or some sort of abdominal and core workout. But yeah, no, James, that is totally fine, and especially swimming. Swimming is a full-body resistance workout. So that is a great one. Um, Kayaking and day hikes, you got it. James, you're doing fine. If you're doing the things you enjoy, that's the way to do it. Thanks a lot, guys. And if you have any questions, make sure to hit me up in the comment section. Thanks.
1: Yeah, personally, I think the the best exercise for human beings is walking. And I believe it's what we were designed to do well. And I think we have this belief that our ancient ancestors were running around all the time, swinging from trees and lifting up rocks and heaving them and, I don't think that's how hunter gatherer societies work today, and that's therefore probably not how they ever did work. There were times of a of immense physical endurance being necessary for brief periods of time. Anybody that's ever participated in combat sports of any sort though knows that it's inherently limiting how long you can go. That's why we have in boxing rules and rounds, right? Because if you if you get no rules and no rounds and the goal is to kill the other person you'd be surprised how quickly uh two two people end up spent and one ends up winning right so the human being was designed as a walker as a stretcher right these are two very natural functions of human beings and if you look at uh the the few hunter gatherer societies that are left they spend a lot of time walking they spend a lot of time laying on the ground They spend a lot of time stretching. They spend a lot of time talking, and they don't eat our modern garbage. And the more modern garbage you eat, the more work you got to do to compensate for it. So that's that's another thing out there. Now on the swimming, I'd like to give you something we do here that I think is an incredible exercise, and it's very easy because you don't you sweat, but you don't know it because the water takes away. We have a. uh, An above-ground pool, like probably the most popular uh, dimensions of above-ground pool in the world, 24-foot round and uh, 4-foot deep. And flat bottom. There's no deep end. And that means it's great for things when the kids come over to play volleyball and water basketball and stuff like that because everybody can stand the same. We have a pretty heavy-duty pump uh, that on high, the damn thing's got some current to it. I'm, I'm telling you, just when you get in it, you don't really notice And a little kid gets in it and they're holding on to the wall because it's taking them away. What, what my wife and I will do is we'll get in the pool, and we'll go the direction of the, the current, and we'll run in the pool. So you're, you're, you're running, but you keep your arms below the water, and you, you're, even though your feet are touching the ground, you go like you're running. You, you use your arms like you're swimming, though. You cup your hands like you're doing a freestyle stroke. You got your body, so your breathing is, is a natural breath, and it's more like walking, but you're walking through water. Uh, you're going in the direction of the current, yet you're exceeding it, so you're having the resistance of the water. So that's a low impact. So it's the only real exercise I was able to do much this year until very recently as I was dealing with my knee recovering, and I'd say it's about 99% recovered at this point. But you do that, I would, you do it for whatever frequency you want. This is what we do. We do two laps, or t- I'm sorry, 20 laps like that, as fast as you can which isn't that fast because you're running in water. When you get to that 20th lap, you turn around and make two laps. It's it's not really, I would call it as fast as you can because you ain't going to go fast, as hard as you can in the other direction. And, And that has been an incredible way for us to work out. It's fun. It's more like challenging yourself to something. And if you get to the point where you think it's too easy, just add another lap or two. Right. Now, the thing about going the opposite direction, you get that water moving, man. And when you first turn around and you go back into it, you're going into a current that's probably like 14 miles an hour at that point. And that means to go one mile an hour, you gotta be putting out 15 miles. It's probably not 14. I would bet it's probably somewhere in the neighbor of eight, eight, eight miles an hour, I'd guess. I'd like to figure out some way to, I know how to test it. I can test it with an interval and, uh, just timing a float. But, uh, it's so probably somewhere in that, you know, eight mile current, right? Which is, eight mile an hour water is not like eight mile an hour wind, guys. It's a different thing. You push hard for that first lap. The second lap by the, by the second half of the second lap, it starts to get a little, e- pretty easy. Because your body momentum breaks that strong current. Uh, and that's why we only do two laps in the opposite direction. But, uh, i honestly believe that, like, if someone designed pools to do this with controls, you know, like controlled currents or whatever, like a lap pool or something like that, that was designed to actually keep going instead of staying in place, you could almost build a whole fitness craze around it. it it's an incredible workout. And like I said, it's very, very low impact, uh, and it's something that anybody can do. You don't have to be a great swimmer to be able to do it. Anyway, with that, let's go on to the next one. I have a question for Jeff Lawton on broad acre permaculture. And uh, Jeff's got some great advice on it.
7: Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia and my first question is from Matthew and uh, his, uh, his question is about how to handle existing growth and overgrowth on a site that intends to install broad acre permaculture. Now, let's hope you've got some experience in broad acre permaculture because if you don't it's best to start off small and expand out on what you know will work. Um, and um, what you've got here is a broad acre installation on approximately 35 acres of land. That's quite a lot of land to dive straight into, so hopefully you've got some experience, at least with uh, farming, but particularly with uh, broad acre application. Um, The land is uh, roughly 12 acres tillable, 15 acres of pasture with minimal trees, but some groves of locust, sporadic, mature Ozark, uh, Ozac orange the balance is either overgrowth growth overgrown fence rows or areas that have not been maintained the fence rows and overgrown areas consist of a mix of asian bush honeysuckle ozash, orange autumn olive wild cherries raspberries blackberries multi-flora rows and maybe some fast-growing stuff um, tillage areas are boxed in by these fence rows was previously in corn and soy but has been in hay for three years intends to put in trees here on contour in phase one the pasture has scattered uh, the pasture has scattered hedge trees um, at maybe one to two an acre I think that is eventually I plan to expand forestry plantings to the area this would be phase two to three um, would you clear the fence rows before planning, the phase one trees? Would you clear the overgrown area uh, acreages or leave them as is? They're not particularly productive or navigable right now. Our location is Southeast Indiana, Zone 5. Um, well, Matthew, um, my general rule about clearing is, um, I never clear clear old-growth forest or forest of quality. Um, Anything that's uh, low-quality growth, less than 20 years old, um, I'm prepared to clear, to put in water harvesting systems and more diverse, rich ecosystems uh, of permaculture style. Um, In the subtropics, I'll take down uh, low-quality 20-year-old regrowth to put in dams and swale systems um, because I know they'll quickly repair the landscape um, in this case if most of your regrowth is pretty low quality um, i would clear small areas and work a small area first to make sure you um, get some experience but if you have experience in this sort of thing if you have experience in broad acre uh, broader acre anyway um, i i would uh, think that it's easier to go through and clear and chip um, return all the uh, chips as mulch into the system um, or clear and pile and windrow and then put in your uh, your dams and your swales and your earthworks um, and use the organic matter to um, uh, bring fertility back into the land. Uh, make sure you use uh, good cover crops, nitrogen-fixing cover crops um, and get some organic matter immediately covering the ground if you do go in and clear. Um, chipping would be ideal if you do Um, but I would definitely emphasize that you just take it easy and make sure that you know what you're doing if you're going to do such a uh, a clearing Um, in small areas you can definitely work in amongst regrowth and clear by hand Um, in the larger areas it is quick with a machine but make sure if you use a machine you don't scrape the ground and pile your topsoil up with the organic matter in your piles Uh, be very careful the way you strip it off um and uh don't waste the organic matter return it as a chip form if possible or pile it up and then spread it out as a windrow of rotting organic matter between your trees on contour um and um maybe you're going to deep rip uh it with, with a chisel plow or a yeoman's chisel plow or maybe you're going to put in swales and dams and other earthworks um to make sure the landscape's rehydrated. So, um, it's not a straight answer I'm afraid, um, and it does relate to how much experience you have. Um, it's definitely possible to work at a slower rate in between what you've got, um, or take out a strip at a time on contour and get your plant in sequence right, make sure everything works well um, as you're expecting, and then go through and clear clear larger areas in a set of sequences
1: kind of bringing in my final segment here is following up with Jeff and and speaking to this but in kind of speaking to all things coming and going back to the entrepreneurial stuff I talked about earlier starting small um i can't overemphasize how bad an idea i think it would be for you to go try to, to to just take on this whole 30 acres at one time. The fact that you're asking this question means you're not sure what to do. And when you're not sure what to do, you have a propensity to do something Jeff and I talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, type 1 errors. Remember what Jeff, the way Jeff defined a, a defined a type 1 error. He said a type 1 error is not doing something that's a bad idea. It's doing something that's a good idea in a bad way. 30 acres of land... You go get cut loose with an excavator or something, you could do some, you know, swells and dams are good ideas, but you could do them in a way that's not a good idea. I would also point back to a question I answered recently from someone that's just learning about permaculture and is moving from California, I think, to Minnesota or Michigan was the the place, and they were going from, uh, you know, a suburban yard where they never really did anything at all to three acres, and they're very excited, okay? And I said, in that instance, I would I'd make a garden. I'd make an herb garden. I would set up my worm bins. I would set up my compost system and I would, I would do that on 30 acres. I would probably take one or two acres as your zone one. And I would design that system and design that system to primarily feed yourself and produce some surplus. And I would learn from that and extend into that. Now, if you have like ideal pond sites or something like that and you want to get those ecosystems going i understand that and that's okay and i would i would also say this is probably an ideal solution for you to look for a consultant and a consultant that has some experience with larger scale stuff um you know, you you might even contact Mark Shepard. I don't think he would take the project on personally, but he may have someone that may be interested in taking the project on for you. Though he will push you to do it all quickly, and I'll, I'll explain why in just a second. But you just trying to get like, like your head around this. Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture has some large scale experience. Nick Ferguson could probably be quite valuable to you. You'd have to pay his travel to to travel up that way, where where Bill is closer to you. Um, but these are all like I would before you really, unless you're willing to take a couple years to slowly phase it in and really start with an area where you're going to test all your ideas first and figure out, I hate that. I love that. I don't like that. This is good, but it should go here. I would really think about getting some, some expertise in on this, but definitely start small, break it down to a couple acres and a couple acres is a bigger system than most people realize that it is. Now, Thirty acres isn't that big a system if it's going to be a grazing-based system. So my other thing is, don't you dare clear anything until you know exactly what you're doing at the day after it's cleared, because all you're going to do is either create erosion or it's just going to grow back and it's going to it's going to sucker and be worse than ever, right? You're either going to bare strip it and screw it up. Uh, so you, when you have bare ground. You should have whatever's going in that bare ground sitting there, and it the second that, that bulldozer's done pushing or that excavator, seed and mulch are down there and trees and bushes are going, you have to do it that way or you will hate yourself. You will hate yourself. It's also kind of, you know, it's a good time of year really to do the work, though, because if you're going to put dormant bushes and trees and stuff in, but you probably don't have a design yet, so start small. Now, I'll let Jeff's response speak to the rest of it. But I want to talk about starting small, period. Um, when I discussed the vertical niche vert, you know, type of thing in the homeschool market, you could you can go two ways with that approach. It's good to have that vision, that, that big thinking. But what happens, and I've seen it with so many entrepreneurs that I've worked with, uh, as partners with, and, and, and that I've worked with as, as my clients when I was in that business, they're so worried about making sure they don't rule out all these wonderful things they're going to do. They won't knuckle down and, and, and market and go after that one niche. So back to the homeschool thing, there's nothing wrong with that business starting out and saying, I'm going to build this business and I'm going to start with this niche of homeschoolers. And I'm going to get a core, and I'm going to figure out exactly how to serve my customer and what works. And I'm going to develop my my payment methodology, my collections, uh, my billing procedures. Uh, figure out where and how contractors or employees fit into this business. What are my best marketing venues? I'm going to test market marketing pieces or what have you. And I'm just going to do it all with this one thing. And I'm going to I'm going to go after this one thing. And and when I get you know. 30 customers in this one thing, I'll have a viable proven concept. And then I'm going to go back to the drawing board where I drew out the big picture and I'm going to say, now what's my next niche to expand with? This is how businesses get built. I mean I worked with some big companies, companies that were doing four or five million dollars a year already when I started working with them. And, you know, they were one was in telecommunications and was very, very good at what they did in telecommunications, working with companies like Verizon and AT&T and stuff like that. And they're using mathematics, uh, very advanced self-learning mathematical algorithms, to allow those carriers to say, hey, that area right there is going to fall over and not be able to serve clients in six months at, when, they're, when their own engineers couldn't see it. That's how smart these guys And they were good at it. They did it. Um, and, oh, look, that piece of equipment we think we need there, we don't need it there, we won't need it there for another two years, so we can reallocate it over here. Very, very intelligent decision-making software, and, and quite successful at what they were doing. And the, the right path was to, to dominate that space, but when we put together marketing for them, they would constantly say, but we, could, we can do the same thing for airlines. We can do the same thing for the medical industry. We, we don't want to typecast ourselves. That company, I don't think, is in business anymore. And there's no reason that should be the case. And no reason that should be the case. That company should be in business. And they should be doing what they could do for all those other industries. But because they would never anchor down on their marketing and and, and, and fully penetrate. Or simply say, this was the other option I gave them. They didn't like this either. Okay, fine. You, 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 you've you got this bit you're doing, business you're doing with telecom. You've you got... Uh, uh, your, your salespeople and your account service people work in that anyway. Why don't you pick one of these other things and let's build a subunit to go after it? They want to do that. And Again, that company that should still be in business and doing, you know, a hundred million dollars a year in business today, I don't think is doing anything. And I've seen it with little entrepreneurs. I've seen it with guys that I go and I, when I used to do, you know, web marketing, I'd sit down with local businesses and they, they couldn't, focus on on starting small. Even if they and even if you already got a business, when it comes to expanding it, you start small on the expansion. You pick a piece of the business that can be grown and then you target that and you grow it. This is how you do anything. It's how you do an education, right? This is why people get overwhelmed and think they can't learn a new skill set. They they go to YouTube and they watch, you know, they want to learn, let's say you don't know how to shoot, right? You don't know how to shoot a gun uh handgun very well at all. You basically you know enough to not shoot yourself or somebody else with it, but when it comes to drawing, picking a target, taking a shot, doing a follow-up shot, uh, shooting steel, let's say, like, like IPDA or something like that. And you have to Google IPDA because you don't even know what it is. And, that's and you go watch videos of it, and you see a guy. I'm going to show you how to shoot. And he's like one of the fastest guys in the world at it. And he's moving, and he's running, and he's gunning, and he's engaging targets on an angle, he's doing all this stuff. And you're sitting there going, holy shit, I can't learn that. Well, you can, but don't even worry about that. Because, first of all, in in the realm of of act, unless you're going to compete there, Most of that stuff isn't actually what you would use in a defensive pistol situation anyway. But if you want to go to that level, fine. Learn how to properly draw your pistol, take aim at a single target at a distance that's comfortable for you, fire a single shot, return it to a safe condition, return it to the holster, and do it again. And do that until you can do that proficiently and resist the temptation to fire the second shot when you miss the first one. I do that with Airsoft all the time, and I have to fight myself all the time. If I'm doing one-shot drills, and I happen to miss a plate, the first thing I want to do is pull the trigger again. But you do that, and you build a progression. This is how we should be approaching everything that we do. And when we're kids, see, it's easy. Because kids get excited over stupid little shit. If we could learn to do that again, we could learn anything. It's not just the synapses. They get excited over a little bullshit, right? Like when a kid, you give him a BB gun, and he hits a freaking target the size of a, 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 a Weber kettle grill at three feet, oh, look what I did, right? And that's how we have to be. That little thing, that little victory moves us forward to the next challenge. And we have to not be afraid to start out too small. But once we, wherever we started, whether it's business, whether it's learning a new uh, mathematics service, you know, whether it's computers, whether it's shooting, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is. Once we've gotten that that first step down and where we can do it consistently, the next thing we need to do is not be afraid to challenge ourselves to the next step or to try a new method or to move on to a new level. And if we do that, we can all do anything we want. Now, here's the key. I didn't say we can do everything we want. There's so much shit I want to do, and I have to fight it all the time because I'm, I'm not the kind of person that talks about stuff. I'm an implementer, right? I'm not like, one day I'm going to do this, and one day I'm going to go, I'm doing this today, and I'm doing that tomorrow, and it, it's a good thing, and it's a bad thing. So I can be successful at anything that I want, but I can't be successful at everything that I want to be successful. I've found my own limits to how much I can do as an individual. But I'm always trying to make the core, for instance, the show, better. My homestead, better. Always another step. And I did the same thing, and it's why I'm so cautionary now with the homestead. I went ape shit here. I started digging swales and putting in garden beds all over the place, and everything was disjointed. But I knew how it was going to all, and it is kind of all, like Nick Burdner came by uh, a few months ago, and he said, This is a system now. He goes, I was worried when you started because I didn't see a system. Now I see a system. And I I told him, I said, well, first of all, I had to figure out what wasn't going to work here. And I had a unique opportunity where I could afford to fail a lot. But now that I've done it, I could go back and I could do this a lot more methodically. And I could probably be further ahead in two years doing it with what I know now than I am at three years doing it with this erratic attitude. And I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I was just... And I knew I was doing the wrong thing while I was doing it. I just wanted it. And that's what we have to balance. Like Wanting something is the best thing in the world to drive the passion to get it done. But wanting it bad enough to willingly make mistakes or rush things that you shouldn't is the number one way that we screw things up. So start small. If you do that, you really can do anything you want. I hope that gives you a little motivation as you head into this weekend. With that, remember if you want to support this show and the work I do, you can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members and signing up as a member of the Member Support Brigade and this show is not possible without you guys that are part of the Member Support Brigade. Uh in return for joining, you'll get discounts on um, products that you're probably buying anyway, and uh, in fact, 66, 67 companies that we have discounts for you there. So it's a way to support the show and get your money back. And if you use enough of the discounts over a year, probably to make money uh, using my product while you support my show, I really appreciate you guys that do that. And there's a lot of other stuff to the MSB as well. There's a lot of resources there. There's free ebooks. There's downloads. There's uh, some video content you can't get anywhere else. Check it out today at SurvivalPodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And remember, you can always get to the Survival Podcast by just going to tspc.co. It'll short link you right there and you can type less digits. Another short link to use is tspaz, tspaz.com. tspaz will take you to a page on the site where you can click a link and go to Amazon and do your Amazon shopping. And why would you do that? Because you can support my show and you don't spend any extra money. You don't have to spend a penny that you weren't going to spend anyway. You go to Amazon, you buy your stuff, no matter what it is, you get your stuff from Amazon, you get all the great service from Amazon, and you support the survivalpodcast.com by, by doing your shopping on Amazon that you were going to do anyway. I also have my item of the day that I review on Amazon, and today's item of the day is uh, the Red Yetiware uh, kitchen shears that I featured in my uh, kitchen uh, Forever Kitchen Tools episode. Uh, Red Yeti shears are the best value in kitchen shears I've found. Uh, I've I've used some shears that are $50 kitchen shears, and one particular brand uh, that I actually like their knives. Uh, every time I used them, they would fall apart. Now they're supposed to come apart, but they're not supposed to come apart when you're using them. I'm talking about shears that you can turn all the way open and kind of lift them apart so you can clean them well. And the Red Yeti ones do that, but those were $50 shears, and the the Red Yeti ones are 12 bucks. And the Red Yeti ones don't come apart. They're made of good quality stainless steel. They have one side of the, the blades are micro serrated, so they cut through bone and cartilage and stuff like that when you're cutting chickens really, really well. And the important thing is, again, they do come apart. You turn them and there's a, like a keyed uh, joint and it comes apart, and that way you can clean them. This is important because if I'm going to take a pair of shears one day and I'm going to cut, you know, a chicken with it, a raw chicken with it, and the next day I'm going to turn around and cut up stuff that's going into a salad that's not going to be cooked, it damn well has to be cleaned. These things are fantastic, and since I've featured them, over over 200 of them have been bought through the Survival Podcast links. Total number of complaints I've heard from people, zero, zero absolutely none, and I think you'll see why if you give them a chance. There's a good write-up today, but remember, it doesn't matter if you have any interest in Red shares, shears or you already own them, you got shears you're happy with. The big thing is, if you want to support the show, tspaz.com, shop from Amazon through tspaz, and you really help us a lot. The other short link, TSPbiz.com. TSPbiz goes to the business directory. That is the place to find members of this audience and do business with them. We talked a lot about entrepreneurship today. Or if you're an entrepreneur, to be found by other members of this audience. Two Chicks Meat and Poultry is our supporting member today. They provide local pasture-raised non-GMO non-soy chicken to the central texas market i keep seeing this but i i probably since i didn't raise any chickens this year I need to go see these guys and uh load up the deep freezer with uh, pastured chicken because i'll tell you of all the things that you can try and really taste the difference and see the difference and smell the difference between factory farmed and uh and and na- naturally raised chicken is a big one if you open a pack of chicken from like for or Sanderson farms or whatever it stinks I mean there's no way around it. It has a smell that is not a pleasant smell when you get good pasture chicken that's not there, and that's that tells you something right by itself. Alas uh, today, I have a song for you. I wanted a kind of an upbeat song that didn't have to have be anything serious that maybe I could still give you a serious message for and then still send you off. Happy go lucky. And as I was perusing through different songs today, I found this song, and I bet you everybody here has heard it. It's from the 90s. It's called Breakfast at Tiffany's. And uh, it's by a band called Deep Blue Something. And unfortunately, because of the way music often works, Deep Blue Something became a one hit wonder. And uh, a lot of the music they tried to make other than Breakfast at Tiffany's wasn't very good. And uh, that had a lot of political stuff going on in it, lawsuits involved in. Just having to sue a label to get away from them, and they just never were able to recover. But this one-hit wonder was a one-hit wonder. It was so popular, and it is still. I hear it when I when I put on regular radio stations or something today uh, on like top forty, you know, that play older top forty songs. This song still played a lot. Um, It kind of has kind of a a pop slash rock slash little bit of punk. You know, almost like a British influence, even though these guys are from Denton, Texas, by the way. Um, going on with it, and you know, I think most people are at least familiar with the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, though that that was just chosen because it sounded better. That's not really the the movie that inspired the song. the uh, The movie that actually inspired it was called Roman Holiday, but uh, Todd Pipes, a songwriter, uh, just figured that the words "Tip Breakfast at Tiffany's" would make a better song, and I think he was right. Um, but the, the the premise in this song is that you know this this the the woman's like basically we have nothing in common the, there's no no place to start we we might as well just end this relationship and the guy brings up what about breakfast at Tiffany's and she says yeah I remember the film we both liked it and he said that's one thing we've got and it's pretty much that is the whole song uh, but it's a good sound it's, a, it's it's a happy song you know um, but I, I think the reason that it was popular with people it's because it's someplace we've all been in relationships. I think most of us, unless you're that really lucky, rare couple that became high school sweethearts and, and got married and you're 50 and you know you're gonna die together, most people have been through relationships that they, they tried to take to a serious level, but they just, it didn't work. And you get to a point where maybe both of you know that you should walk away and go do other things, but There's a fear of loss, and there is something that kindled the relationship in the first place that you don't want to give up, so you'll find an excuse to remain in that relationship. Well, folks, those relationships don't just happen with people. They happen with things, uh, abusive behaviors, for instance. They happen with careers. They happen happen with design decisions. I put this there, now I have to live with it, right? They happen in so many things in our life. There are people for working jobs that they should be finding a way out of that won't because they say things like, I've got responsibilities and I've got to pay the bills. And, and that's true. That means you probably shouldn't just quit your job tomorrow with no plan B. But it does mean that if you're really miserable, those people you're taking care of are not going to be very happy dealing with a miserable person. Okay, And I'd like to quote somebody here that I occasionally quote. He's a writer named Richard Bach, and this is from his book, Illusions, Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah. And it comes from the Messiah's Handbook, which is a magical book in the story that when you have a question, you open the book and it just tells you a a saying, and you hold your thought in your head, and you open it, and there's the saying, and then it gives you the answer to whatever problem you have. Okay. And at one point in the story, he opens the book and it says, The best way to avoid responsibility is to say that I've got responsibilities. Now, when I first read that, I was in my early 20s, and I had no real responsibilities, and I didn't get it. I'll be honest. I consider myself a smart person, but I didn't really get it. As I built a life, and other people started depending on me, I started to get it a lot more. We have a responsibility to do what's best for ourselves and what's the best thing for others around us at the same time. We cannot do one to the exclusion of the other. Back to our history segment today. A divided house cannot stand. I cannot be the father of a family and do only what is best for my family to the exclusion of what's best for me and have a family survive. Nor can I be a father who does only what's best for me to the exclusion of what's best for the family as a whole and have the family survive. And there is your divorce rate today. No matter who else gets blamed, that's what it's come down to. Well-meaning people who do everything for their family but nothing for themselves and become so miserable that they are actually Disliked by their family, and they feel hate, and they feel rejected. Then, how can you not want to be? I do everything for you, and well, you're not the guy you used to be, or you're not the woman you used, to, right? And th- this all stems from this belief, this belief that we either must serve ourselves or we must serve others. That there can be no coexistence where we both serve others and ourselves, and we use the excuse of responsibility to avoid the true responsibility to find the balance and do the work to make it happen. It's amazing what you can get from a song when you really think about the life issue it's describing, whether or not the artist meant for you to. The other side of that is, it is just a cool song. It's got a good beat to it. It should make you feel good and send you off into your weekend in a willingness to kick ass and take names. And if there is something that's making you miserable, if there is something making you less of who you should be for yourself or for others, then find the balance and the way to correct it and don't hide from the responsibility to live the life that you're supposed to be living. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You'll say
7: we've got nothing in common common ground to start from and we're falling apart You'll say the world has come between us Our lives have come between us Still I know you just don't care And I said what about then she said, I...